drive a present pursuit of entertainment, education, and some adjective to be named later. The Home Star Army proudly presents Trek West 5, a conglomerate podcast of science fiction, politics, humor, and pretty much whatever else we want to talk about. Trek West 5 is brought to you in part by RocketWebDesign.com, custom web design at template website prices. Designs by Dee.blogspot.com, your online home for all your digital scrapbooking needs. Need a home along the Wasatch Front? Contact Lisa DeBagere with Kirkham and Friends Real Estate. No one will work harder for your home. And thehomestarmy.com, blogging to the world since 2004. Your hosts for Trek West 5 are Joey and Peter. Okay, uh, let's do that one. This one right here. This has fast become one of my favorite authors, Patrick Rothfuss. Um, I think you covered him in a Joey's Culture Corner once, did well. didn't, yeah. didn't you? Um, so there's only two books in his trilogy that he's going to be doing. Uh, the third one isn't out yet. <laughs> I don't know if you've read this. I haven't read them yet. They're on my ah, list. You, you should do it. As a matter of fact, you're welcome to take this copy okay, home with well. you if you would like. Um, but I, I really, really enjoy this uh, this book. It's called The Name of the Wind. Um, and it's a story of a character whose name is Kvoth. <laughs> you figure out how to pronounce it. Quoth. <laughs> sure. We'll, we'll say that. <laughs> uh, I really enjoyed it. It captured me right at the beginning because the, the way that the author... Uh, begins is he talk the the prologue is called a silence of three parts, and uh, he he goes through and he talks about the different types of silences that happen to be surrounding this character, um, and uh, the, the very last uh, sentence in there it was a heavy uh, it was heavy as a great river uh, river smooth stone, it was the patient cut flower sound of a man who is waiting to die. And when I read that, I thought, okay, this might be worthwhile. Uh, because it was a, a friend at work, uh, Oliver, who had given me the book and said, dude, you're going to love this. You've got to read this. Um, and when he handed it to me, I looked at the thickness of it. It's about a 700, <laughs> little over 700 pages. I said, oh, gosh, I can't get through this. Read that, that first, you know, one little page thing. That's all it is. I was hooked. And I really, really enjoyed this entire series as you learn about this character who has some really horrible things happen to him and the decisions that he makes. And you know, it, it's obviously in a, a fantasy world, so there's, there's going to be you know, some magic stuff that's going on. There's going to be sword play. There's all sorts of that stuff. It's got all of the things that you want in a fantasy novel, as far as I am concerned. Guy nailed it. Um, is there an overarching trend or theme to this? Uh, yeah, but I couldn't tell you what it is because I think because the third story hasn't been written yet, we don't know fully where he's intending for yeah. it to go. Joe, you may have your own thoughts of where you think it might be going. I wouldn't even want to try and guess. I, I think I think we're not supposed to know. I think it's part of the story that we're not really supposed mm -hmm. to know what is actually happening yet. Well, all we're seeing, because the entire thing is told as a guy recounting his life. Right. And the, the experiences that he had. And 
because and, we and don't know how it, he ends up where he is yet, it, we don't know what the point of the story is. Right, and it's interesting because we come to find out as time goes on, he's still actually pretty young yeah. when they're telling the story, and he's this great epic person in in this world this huge guy that everybody knows the stories about him and you know it's he's a pretty amazing mysterious guy so if you're a fan of science uh, uh, fantasy excuse me go and pick up the name of the wind by patrick rothfuss you'll love it i guarantee you'll love it i think you chose well reviewing that one uh, here because the next book on my list is the wheel of time by robert jordan uh specifically the eye of the world but I, I, I'm going to talk about the series as a whole. So the interesting thing is, and I, and I see Rothfuss headed in the same direction. Uh, for people who know, who don't know, sorry, <laughs> The Wheel of Time is now at 14 books? 13 books. I think the 14th was, it will be A Memory the of Light. The 14th will be A Memory of Light. Um, when Robert Jordan first had the idea for The Wheel of Time, he approached uh, Tom Doherty, who's the publisher, and said... I got this great idea for a trilogy. <laughs> and couldn't fit it in three books. And so there was a fourth book. And then there was a fifth book. And then there was a sixth book. And then the guy died without finishing the series. And so they had to go get Brandon Sanderson, who was chosen by the widow of James Regney, which is Robert Jordan's real name, um, and asked him to take the copious notes that, that he'd put together and, and finish the series. And what's interesting is that there's supposed to be one more book in the series. So Sanderson sits down to plot out the first book, and he comes to Tom Doherty and says, I'm not going to be able to do this in one book. I need a trilogy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and Tom Doherty says, Oh, it's happening again! The series has to stop, people! <laughs> um, I think Rothfuss is headed the same way. I, I don't see how he's going to wrap this thing you up know, in one I, book. I follow Rothfuss's blog um, on a regular basis. He's talked about how this is a three-part story. But that does not preclude the, the fact of there are other things that are going on in this big world that there can be stories written about. Okay. But he said the, the story of, of this character is going to be told within this three-part I can believe it's going to be told in three parts because of the narrative structure he set up. It requires that it be in three parts. I don't necessarily believe that it will be in three volumes. Oh, I, I think <laughs> I think when we get day three... Uh, I think uh, it'll be all I, in one I, book. I think that, okay. that'll be over at that point. Um, I think there will also be additional books within that world that may not necessarily deal specifically with him, gotcha. but with other characters that maybe potentially interact with him, but tell other parts of the story that we only get, you know, just a smidgen of. Gotcha. So anyway, you, you were talking about Robert Jordan's We Love yeah, Time. So, or, Curtis, did you want to say something? I was, no. We'll come back to it. I see some books on here that I, <laughs> okay. I think might tie into okay. my thoughts. So. Okay. Um, the thing about The Wheel of Time is it probably has about as many fans as it does very heavy detractors. Um, there are people who I, I think fairly will claim that it's fairly derivative. At least the first few books are, you know, there's you can, you can see a lot in them and you go, okay, that wasn't necessarily the most original idea ever. But it's epic fantasy. There's not that many original ideas out there. Um, one of the things about the series that I think is a, is a fair criticism on it is the characters don't grow a whole lot over the course of the series. I mean, we're 
13 books in and they're still pretty much the same personalities they were 13 books ago. They have a lot of the same character traits and, and, and habits and things like that that just make you want to rip your hair out and slap the character around and say, come on, grow out of this already. You've, you've been through world-changing events and you're still acting like a teenager. Um, but all of that said, I love this series. I, I, I'll qualify that. I haven't read any of the Sanderson books yet. Um, when, when Rigney died, I was very sad because I thought, I just don't know that any other author is going to have the touch that he had on this, on this story. Um, it's, it's epic fantasy. And the concept is that it's a world that has pretty much become a matriarchy because women can wield magic, men cannot. Men can, but in order to do so, a side effect of doing so is that they become insane. Uh, the character of Satan in, in the series has put a taint on the male half of magic that accumulates in them mentally and spiritually, and it just corrupts them over time, where they become these insane power-mad freaks. Um, and one of the main characters is the, the foretold one that's going to come and, and cleanse the taint off of the male side of magic and reunite the world and lead them all into a victorious battle against Satan. Or is he? Uh, it's you know there, there's it, it's great because there's it's there's not a clear answer to is this guy a hero or is he just kind of nuts and super powerful sure okay really powerful <laughs> but is what he is what he's going to do at the end is that going to be a good thing or is it just kind of going to be a, an important thing not necessarily the same thing right um, the characters. I think for the most part they're they're very vividly detailed. You know, he he talks in in several interviews and things like that about how he's got filing cabinets full of notes about what's their favorite color and what you know what breakfast did their mother feed them as a child that makes them hark back to the good old days. I mean, he he's very very meticulous about the details. I know that some people don't appreciate the fact that those details leak into his writing. They wish that they he would just stop giving them the details and, <laughs> and write the darn story already. Um, but I, I really <laughs> like it for that aspect. I, I really enjoy it. And that's why when I heard this morning that they're, they've announced the release date of the final book in the series, which will be January 2013, I, I approached Curtis and, and Pete and also Jared uh, to say, hey, you know, let's let's do this as a blog. Let's let's read through this because I think Pete, you and Jared, I think you guys might really enjoy it. Uh, but I also know that unless I'm basically holding your hand and making you do it, you're not going to do it. I actually would appreciate it if you would hold my hand while, while I read. <laughs> I, f- I get a little nervous, a little scared. I can help you sound out the hard words. <laughs> uh, Curtis, I know you've read the series. I have read as far as you have. I have not read yet any of the Brandon Sanderson penned novels. Uh, Here's the thing that I've listened to and heard from all of you guys is that he just goes on and on and on. Now, I'm not saying that's a criticism of, you know, saying people are very detailed about what they do because I think we would probably say Tolkien was one of those guys who went on and on about certain things, but it was to a point. It was... You know, trying to get across one major overarching idea and theme. Is that the same thing that Robert Jordan does? I don't. I, I mean, because I no. had a hard time with Tolkien. I really did. It was tough for me to finish 
Lord of the Rings. Granted, I was very, very immature being in high school at the time. My, I hadn't grown up. <laughs> I think Honestly, you, I hadn't. I think you have an easier time reading the Wheel of Time than you would uh, yeah. the Lord of the Rings. Uh, here's here's the th- here's my interpretation of of what Robert Jordan's quote unquote problem is. Why he has made this series so long. He has scenes in his mind, almost like a movie, that he wants to make sure get depicted. And he's going to lay all the groundwork that's necessary for you to understand why that scene is so intense and why, you know, why is this battle between this good guy and that bad guy so important and world-changing and things like that. He's got to lay all that, that framework down so that you can appreciate the scene that he is seeing in his mind. I think some of those scenes probably could have been cut and probably would have cut two or three books and five or six years out of the series. And by the years, I mean the actual years he spent writing. Uh, if he had just said, okay, that scene, it's really cool, but we kind of already saw that scene in a previous book or a different, slightly different version of that scene, maybe we don't need to see this one this time. Is this the only thing that Robert Jordan ever wrote? No, absolutely not. Okay, so he was doing yeah. other stuff. Yeah. He, he, his actual name is James Rigney. And he wrote under, I think, three or four different pen names over the course of his career. I don't know why. But uh, you can find a lot of Conan stuff under the name of Robert Jordan. And I loved his Conan books. Um, I think The Hour of the Dragon was the one I enjoyed the most. But uh, he, so he, he was an incredibly prolific writer. Okay. Um, just, he, he got, I can't remember now amylodosis, some form of amylodosis, which is what, what killed him before he had a chance to finish the series. Yeah. Uh, just to talk about the, the, the length and breadth of the books, um, I think, um, building on what you said, he, he felt the need to flesh out a lot of minor characters <laughs> to yeah. maybe, I'm not sure if his goal was just to lend impact to later scenes in the, in the, in the story, or or what, but um, apart from from just having so many characters that you have to keep track of, there was that tenth book where I just felt like he needed an editor. He needed somebody to say, no, this can't be in the book, because it seems like the middle two or three hundred pages, um, there's somebody assuming, uh, trying to take over a throne. I'll say that without giving anything away, really. And it just seemed like it it just didn't need to happen. It just... There, it could have easily been cut, and it would have made that book move a lot snappier and a lot I, more enjoyable to read. Which I think actually is what makes Brandon Sanderson, unfortunately, an excellent choice to finish the series because Sanderson has the same problem. He, in in my opinion, he will write things that I don't think need to be in the story. And if a good, strong editor would have stood up to either of these guys and said, "All right, just cut it, man. You got to stop. Just just write the freaking story already." If if someone had had the ability to do that to him, I think they both would have come out stronger writers. Uh, you know, and obviously, what do I know? Uh, Jordan and Sanderson have both sold millions of copies of books. But just for me as a reader, I think if a, if a good editor were to step in and say, you know what, you don't need that piece. Yeah, but I, I think, to be fair, you've got tens of listeners. <laughs> That's true. And I do a lot of editing to get the podcast out there. <laughs> Speak from an area of authority. Yeah. Yeah. Curtis, why don't you go on for your next one? All right, my next book, and uh, it's funny because this uh, was perfectly set up by Joey talking about having filing cabinets full of information and backstory on characters because 
The book I chose was Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell by Susanna oh, Clark. I'm glad you're talking about this. I, it's on my shelf. I've been meaning to get to this for years. It uh, is an <laughs> it is a very funny book uh, because some people will read it and just I think it will drive them crazy. But I absolutely loved this book. It is it is pretty thick. And it has footnotes, and the footnotes <laughs> are probably one of the best parts of the book because the the details that this author has put into this world are just so droll and witty and just <laughs> incredible. And it, it's let, let me just give a little background on the book. This uh, takes place in England. Uh, I want to say early eighteen hundreds. It's kind of an alternate history. There's magic in the world. Every everybody has known that magic was real there was a, a king several centuries earlier that had uh, ruled over all or the northern i believe the northern part of england if i'm remembering the story correctly and he, he uh kind of was supposed to return again sometime in the future he's he's very powerful magic and there he had dealings with fairies and at the time the story starts uh, magic has disappeared from England for a couple of hundred years. There are still men who meet together and talk about magic and read books about magic, but nobody is actually practicing magic. And then one day someone does magic, and um, then another person does magic. And it kind of goes into the story of, of what happens, and um, these magicians end up dealing with Napoleon as he's attacking England and going on his war over over the continent and uh, just just very uh, it's a great story and just very very British humor a lot of British humor just very subtle <laughs> things that make you just chuckle and if if you're not looking for it you can just skip right over it but it was a very enjoyable book I highly recommend it yeah. it's kind of steampunkish isn't it um well I, I got that sense from someone else but you know I I wouldn't label it as steampunk. Okay. Yeah, I I wouldn't I don't remember there being any like steam technology that they used in it. It's very much magic. Magic, yes. Okay. Um, but but magic hasn't been in the world for a couple of hundred years, so it's very. It's, you know, at the start of the book, it seems very much like it could be almost Jane Austen that you're reading. <laughs> um, just that kind of that setting. Okay. And, uh, but yeah, they, would you say that the author is trying to say something in this, or is this someone who's writing? Um, Predominantly to entertain. I would say it's it's more to entertain. Um, I mean, I, I I hesitate to compare it to Jane Austen. I love Jane Austen, but it's it's not really that same kind. I mean, it's not really that same genre. But um, you know, Jane Austen didn't really try to tell. I, I I mean, maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe she was trying to convince the world that the right thing to do was marry a smart and witty woman, and and I. <laughs> By all accounts, she succeeded. <laughs> but um, uh, that's—I I don't really think that there's a theme like a like something that the author is trying to to put across so much. It's just very fun, enjoyable read. I, I enjoy those types of things where yeah. it, it the writing is almost in itself the the thing that you're getting out of it. You know, they're the 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 fun word play definitely that you yeah. get out of it. Uh, I think I. It would be fun to do something. It sounds interesting. It yeah. does. It, listening to you talk about it. So, that's cool. Okay, Pete. Let's do an email. All right. Last email for the evening. This is uh, Brandy Smurf. He says, 
And now for something completely different. <laughs> a book suggestion. Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. For myself and many others, I can recall and contrast my life and my psyche before and after I read Ishmael. I hope you understand my uh, disinclination to say too much here, for this novel is quite religious and equally philosophical. I will leave it to the inspired listeners who pick this book up to discover who the character of Ishmael is. But for now, we will just say that he is the protagonist's teacher. So, in this novel, a dude feels like his life sucks, or that life sucks and maybe he's just totally bummed out. Whatever the reason, he, whilst reading the newspaper, spots an ad that states something like, Interested in saving the world? Apply in person. I added the lilt there. That wasn't in the writing. <laughs> so, I assume you were just, you know, you're pleased with my lilt. Well read. Well read. It, it yeah. sounds like an ad I would respond to. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> it continues. The lion's share of the book is the dialogue between teacher and student. They start with the Garden of Eden. By the way, dudes, did you know that there are two creation stories in the book of Genesis? One with Lilith and one with Eve. But that's for another day. The teacher's point is that Adam's fall from Eden is conveyed by the perspective of a speaker whom is on the outside looking in. What does that mean? I won't tell you. Then we move on to Cain and Abel. And now I ask you dudes, if you will allow it, why did God so favor Abel over Cain? Is it really because of the sacrificial elements, or was it Kosh? <laughs> the contention. <laughs> Curtis just shrugged. It's <laughs> a uh, character from Babylon 5. Uh, yes, you would have grown to hate him. You would have. It wouldn't have taken much. <laughs> <laughs> the contention of Daniel Quinn is that their uh, God provided a very meta choice between farming and hunting slash gathering lifestyles. The later creates harmony with the land, while the former conveys a sense of dominance over Mother Earth. The teacher posits a metaphor to represent human civilization. We are like one of those early flying machine attempts. Uh, as we have already jumped off the cliff, we are now suspended in a fraction of a moment of descent where we believe if we just pedal harder, we can somehow eschew the inevitable plummet. Yes, I know that many have observed that our culture is going to hell in a handbasket. Quinn, however, employs an interesting argument as to why. Now, I will say that many books or movies like this annoy me because they point out the problems without offering solutions. Ishmael is not a solution. It's an insight. A powerful insight. And what's wrong with cultivating your sense of perspective? I will make this simple. I have often been accused of thinking too much. <laughs> so, if you have also fallen victim to the people around you debasing your deep thoughts then read Ishmael. But if you are one, the people whom... But if you are one, the people one whom... I, I, there's no of in there. But Insert if one. you are one of the people whom accusers assume... Uh, uh, others of thinking too much, then stay away. Thanks for all your collective awesomeness, dudes. Ambassador Brainy Smurf. Right 
I don't think I've heard of that one. He had uh, suggested it when I had put it up on the uh, the uh, Facebook page, and I thought, uh, pass. <laughs> but it does sound interesting. Yeah, especially made a good case for it. I- interested in saving the world? Yeah. Yeah. That would was be kind of neat. was the title? Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. Okay. Daniel Quinn. Right on. Okay, Pete, how about giving us one of your books? Okay, I will hand you back one of your books. <laughs> my, all my books. <laughs> and I'm going to oh, go oh, back under the secret, back to the secret stash here. All right. And I'm going to get this out. Curious George <laughs> right. by Margaret and H.A. Ray. I loved Curious George's kid. It is, without a doubt, my favorite children's story. Curious George. I think that they are absolutely fantastic. I loved them as a kid. I have very fond and vivid memories of going to the library to check out other Curious George books as a child. Um, I loved them so much. Is that really the complete adventures of Curious George? Yes, of all of the, the Curious it's George stories. Mm-hmm. That's Wait, correct. I've, I think they've continued the series, but with Ghost Riders, so the, that's probably the collection with of... With Margaret and right. H.A. Race specifically, they could have potentially probably right. done additional ones, because, I mean, it's, it's children's stories. It, it, yeah. It's not I, that hard. I'm guessing that some of the books <laughs> I have at home are not in your collection. But <laughs> I mean, really. We have quite a few. So, uh, so anyway, um, this uh, this whole thing I, I bought, and I'm I'm going to admit to you guys that when I bought this, I worked at Deseret Book. This was in the discount bin. Now, you have to remember something. This uh, Deseret Book is predominantly an LDS bookstore, but they sell lots of other things. I mean, they hold a whole children's section, etc. This was sitting in the discount bin because nobody had really picked it up to buy it. It's a very, very thick book, and it was... Uh, oh, gosh, I don't even remember how much it was. It, expensive. Probably a lot more money than I had at the time. It had a little sticker on it that told me, okay, if no one continues to buy this, it's going to continue to have the percent off go up. You so, the book. as the stock clerk, <laughs> <laughs> the one who was in charge of you know the stock room and shipping and receiving, I said, huh, well... Looks like the devil wins. And I took this book and stuck it downstairs and waited till it hit the 80% off mark and then went and purchased it. I say that to not so, uh, you know, I can suggest that others do that, but to just say, I'm human. I, I'm not so awesome all the time. Uh, but I'm happy that I have it. And, uh, you know, the, this, this first story that's in here, Curious George, is, you know, tells the story of how George comes from... Uh, I think it was Africa, and they they bring him all the way to America, and the man with the yellow hat, and all of the adventures that Curious George has. Read this to your children. No. This is a wonderful thing for you to read no. to your children. Uh, it is, it's great. I hate Curious George. <laughs> I've always hated Curious George, and here's really? why. Curious George oh, is not this curious. This is going to be George. political. This is going to no, move into the liberals somehow. <laughs> the pinkos. Curious George is troublemaker George. That's what the guy does whatever he wants and gets away with it because he's cute. Because he's a cute little monkey. That's funny because I, I've 
I've talked about Curious George with my wife, and she adores Curious George because he's always exploring new things, and it always turns out that he fixes all the problems that he creates. Yeah! <laughs> I can point to several Curious George stories where the man in the yellow hat's just going, oh, George. <laughs> he always I, I, makes it better in the end. It always gets better in the end. George rarely has anything to do with it. Come better. on! He's a monkey! There's a limited capability for this guy. Apparently not a limited capability for trouble. Because he will... He go lives to... in a strange and mysterious world. What are all these sights and sounds over here? There's an L call back there. Your world frightens him. <laughs> I, as a kid, I hated Curious George. My kids watched the cartoon. I've never really done the cartoon. I did never watch the movie when it came out uh, a few years ago. Um, because in my mind, this is Curious George. The, the pure story form of it. And so, I didn't really want to get into that. The, the, the new cartoon, I actually like a little bit better. Because it's more about George exploring and less about him making trouble for other people. <laughs> I mean, he, he he rarely gets into the kind of colossal, like... I remember the one where he goes to the chocolate factory. And he somehow... I can't remember. He's like he's just, like, pushing buttons at random. He's like, oh, I wonder what that button does. <laughs> and causes the whole chocolate factory to break down. Runs to the man with the yellow hat and apologizes. And everything is just swept under the rug. Which is just fine. That, that business didn't lose millions of dollars of... <laughs> That's not actually how that book goes. I can oh, tell you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Put him in his place, Curtis. Go get him. <laughs> I didn't care for Curtis. <laughs> well, this is going to become the new coffee book, uh, <laughs> book here oh, on, uh, yeah, on, on the table at my house. All right, Joey. Okay, my next one is Star Tide Rising by David Brin. Uh, this is the second book written in Brin's Uplift universe, and it's actually my favorite out of, out of all the books. Uh, it's won the Hugo, the Nebula, and the Locus Award for Best Science Fiction Novel. So it's, it's you know, pretty critically acclaimed. Uh, the, the premise is that throughout the galaxy, there are races who go out and find, find primitive cultures and uplift them to interstellar travel. So it's the exact opposite of the Prime Directive. It's a galactic policy of interference. Right. Humanity manages to uplift themselves to interstellar travel without the interference of these other races. We don't have what is called a patron race to kind of shepherd us into intergalactic travel. And as a result, we're kind of disliked and and almost universally reviled out in the galaxy because they're like, you got here without paying your dues because uplifted races have to serve as as servitor races for, you know, X thousand of years or whatever. I don't remember the specifics, but they actually serve their their uh, patron race almost as a slave race and for a certain a set period of time as their reward for becoming uplifted. Not only has humanity uplifted themselves, but we have managed to uplift chimpanzees and dolphins oh, nice. with us. And, and so we're out there uplifting races on our own without buying into this galactic power structure that was set up. And, and, and so as a result, we're, we're, they kind of try to oppress us a little bit. Um, the, the, in Star Tide Rising, it's all about the craft, the Streaker. Um, so it, it can, the crew of the Streaker consists of 158 uplifted dolphins, 
Seven humans and one uplifted chimpanzee. Um, and so in the course of the novel, they, they stumble, this, the streaker stumbles upon a hidden fleet of super powerful battleships. And it's believed, based on the technology, that these come from a race that everyone thought was a myth. It was the first ones, the, the first race to achieve ever intergalactic travel. And they've been they've been gone for thousands of years. No one knows what happened to them. They uplifted others and others and others and others. And it's so far removed now that nobody even remembers what they were like. But the technology that they discovered is so unknown that their the assumption is, oh, this is the missing war fleet of the first ones. And they you know they call back to Earth and say, hey, look what we found. And Earth's response is. Go radio silent, hide, get out of there, and do not respond. We'll, we'll contact you with further orders. Because immediately on the tails of that broadcast, here comes every other race in the galaxy trying to find this, this hidden spot that the, the, the speaker found. Um, one of the things I really, really enjoyed about this book is that David Brin really th- thought through the ramifications of having a spaceship that is predominantly manned by dolphins because it's full of water. And water has physical properties to it that don't go away just because you're in a vacuum. For example, you get a large body of water moving in one direction, it's incredibly difficult to stop it. Uh, and and just all the, the, the science that he actually went through to make sure that this ship concept could actually work. And then deliver that within the context of the narrative without making it feel like, you're sitting in science class being told how a spaceship full of water is going to work. Uh, I, I thought it was a very neat trick that he pulled. A very, very narrative uh, structure that I enjoyed a lot. I also enjoyed that the, the hinted at this large universe. Now, he never actually, as far as I know, finished telling us about the first ones or gave any of the backstory. But the way he managed to weave the complexity in there without beating us over the head with it, I, I truly enjoyed so we, we never actually get a... Like, that's not the point of it, is to figure out who the first ones are. No. They don't come back and say, Oh, you fools, you've been doing it wrong all this time. The Earthers had it right. Nope. Nothing like that, no. huh? So what is the point of it, then? Just a cool story? Yeah, most, mostly to entertain, okay. but there, there's also an aspect of it of... We need to be more... I'm trying to think of the term for it. Like cultural sensitivity, you know, if if humanity isn't careful, we could find ourselves becoming like all these races that are out there. Where oh yeah, we're the pinnacle of evolution, and and dolphins and chimpanzees and every other race out there just kind of serves mankind. And it's like you know, dolphins bring something to the party, chimpanzees bring something to the party. Other things out there in the universe have some value to them. We shouldn't turn it away just because we're unable to recognize it. Although. If dolphins are really bringing something to a party, it's probably just going to be waterlogged, isn't it? <laughs> it's fish, mostly. Oh. I think Douglas Adams taught us that it's mostly fish. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. In his trilogy that he wrote. Yes, of six books. <laughs> uh, Curtis, you want to go next? All right, well, looking at my list here, and I guess I'll just go off the next one down, which is Assassin's Apprentice by Robin Hobb. Good choice. Um... I know that Joey's read it. He was horrified when he found out that I hadn't. <laughs> um, I don't, have you read the Assassin's Trilogy? No. All right. 
I assume um, that's what I, the video game is based off yeah, of. Assassin's, Assassin's Creed, Creed. definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to get him to read them. <laughs> what, what? I don't remember that. When? When we all worked at Internet Solutions together. Uh, I just missed a lot of what you said back yes, then. Yes, you did. <laughs> we all did, too. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I sat up all by myself. <laughs> Yay! Poor Julie. Segregation's fun. <laughs> Um, alright, well, the Assassin's Apprentice, uh, was kind of funny. I got it as a gift for Christmas one year from, from my wife, and, uh, I read the first couple of pages, and I was like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll get to, I'll get to this later. Thanks, honey. (laughs) (laughs) And I came back to it, and, um, I think she actually read it before I did, I think she got sick of waiting for me to read it, and she picked it up and read it, and then, then I got up the gumption or whatever and started to read it and um I just got really interested it was definitely not what I was expecting I I don't know I guess I was maybe thinking it was going to be like a ninja or something that snuck into people's houses and <laughs> put knives in them and it just didn't sound very very interesting to me but uh, it was fascinating uh and just so well written well crafted and it's so funny how Robin Hobb especially with her Fitz books the main character being named Fitz she will set the reader's expectation and then completely surprise you. Do something... And it totally fits within the context of the book. It's not like a cheap twist on the plot. It totally makes sense, but it's just just the direction of the story takes a completely different tack than what you were expecting when you were reading it. Um, Count number of times in the Assassin trilogy, I thought, this is what's going to happen next. I'm so (laughs) excited for it to happen. And then to completely have my host dashed and just, just be, what? How did, how did that happen? And, uh, was it like a, in a good way or was it in an infuriating way? Like, oh, I, I no, can't believe it was, that. It was, it was soul crushing, but at the same time, just so. Like, but it was like so, a good soul crushing, right? <laughs> yeah. It felt good. Like, you just feel so bad for the main character, but it's just, the way that it's written is so interesting and so vivid and. And you just, oh, you just got to keep reading and you just, you, you're just so glad that you read it, even though it, you're, the thing, the good things that you hoped happened didn't happen, the things that did happen were so interesting and you just, you just want to know what happens next. You just want to keep going with the story. Hmm. I, I really like the way she portrays courtly intrigue from outside. So the, the main character of Fitz is not actually officially part of the royal court. But he sees everything that's going on, and, and he's actually used as a pawn in some of the, the courtly intrigue games that get played. And, and it almost kind of reminds me of the TV show Downton Abbey. I don't know if either of you guys are watching that or have watched that. Oh, you probably have heard of it. I, the, my wife watched it tonight with her mother. <laughs> um, how how it's, it's kind of the outsider's view on what's really important in that culture. I thought that was a really interesting thing that she managed to do. Hmm. Is it definitely a trilogy that has a beginning and an end? Yes. There's <laughs> definitely... The, it's a trilogy of trilogies. Well, there's actually... <laughs> no, well, there's a, there's a trilogy, and it ends, and you can stop right there, and you don't have to ever worry about what happens <laughs> after that. <laughs> there are more books if you want to read them. Um, I some, have some of them are not as good. <laughs> I didn't care for the live ship traders ones. I don't um, know if you've got the live those. ship traders take place in the same universe. They are only tangentially related. Yes. There's one character that we suspect carries over, but it never. Uh, 
in the books that I've read, it never comes out and says that that's the case. Um, Joey, Joey's <laughs> looking like perhaps <laughs> I'm wrong. I don't know. <laughs> um, there's a second trilogy that takes place uh, with Fitz, the main character recurring from the Assassin trilogy. I read the first book. And I was forbidden from reading the additional books by my wife. So really? I have not... Because she have, didn't enjoy them? Uh, she found them to be too soul-crushing. Uh, oh. The story didn't make up for it. But I, I still... I I do recommend that first Assassin's Trilogy. It's very good. She ties the live ship creators back into the fifth story in that second okay. trilogy. All right. So that you can see that they're actually... They're, they really are all integrated. Or, I... I mean, there there were references in each book to the to the others, but um, I I didn't get so far that it actually came out and said specifically. This is that. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. It was left to the reader to make the connection, and I felt like that was enough. Uh, is this a book again written for entertainment's sake, or is there like a little underlying story? That... I would say that there's definitely some themes of uh, dependency on drugs. Um, hmm. Finally, we have a positive voice yeah. in this regard. <laughs> I've been looking for a reason yeah, to get high. Right. Yeah, <laughs> um, definitely, uh, definitely shows the some negative side effects of stimulants. Um, there's some other themes. Struggling to come up with it on the fly. I don't know if you parental enjoy. relationships. I think is a, a strong element of what she's writing about the relationship between a father figure and it, and his child, and that, that there's a. I'm trying to think of the word. There's, there should be a commitment there on both sides. There should be a, a, an active decision to, yes, I'm going to be a father figure to this person. And not just, yeah, well, I'm here and I'm older than you, so I guess I'm your dad. <laughs> All right. I mean, many of the characters are, in my opinion, emotionally damaged, terribly emotionally yeah, damaged, definitely. because the person who was their father figure didn't live up to the role. Well, that's sad. Yeah, there's definitely, and there's some um, exploration of of love and how yeah. that how that affects people. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's definitely a deeper series than a, you know, your Dave Duncan. I mean, there's it's, <laughs> there's more to it. There's a, it's it's a. Are they thick books or uh, relatively uh, short? Four or five hundred pages. Yeah, about five hundred pages. All right, they do sound interesting. They do yeah. the way that uh, you kind of explain it. There it does intrigue me <laughs> touch just a touch uh so maybe um Pete. my turn all right the next one i'm going to do is going to be a duo Ooh. um and it's right that i would do these two together because the, they ha i think when these the second one finally came out they were called parallel yes. novels um which i think that was probably like a new term I don't think Orson Scard, Orson Scott Card, Orson Scott. <laughs> I don't think he came up with that term. I think somebody else did. Probably his publisher, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. or mar the marketing department. For at, at any rate, uh, I am holding Ender's Game and Ender's Shadow. Now these are the. Before you get started, I just want to interject my comment from previously about uh, the name of the wind. You talked uh -huh. about um, having other stories take place in the universe. I was wondering if. The parallel novel idea would would hold would hold there. You talked about it's certainly possible um, that he could go there. That if you were going to go back and cover that, if the if you thought that that would be the direction they went, I, I think we could hear. There, there's one particular character who yeah. seems to be very important to the main character. Um, in, in this case, what what we're getting at here, Ender's Game talks about the story of uh, Ender or Andrew Wigan. 
Um, Ender's Shadow talks about the story of Bean. Um, and in Ender's Game, the original story, Bean plays a kind of a minor role. He's not that important. Uh, Orson, uh, or I should say... What? Sorry, nothing? <laughs> uh, C- Card really kind of took that character and said, because there's very little we know about him in this... I'm going to expand this out and write this into a, what is, in my opinion, almost a better story than Ender's Game. Almost. I, I personally, Ender's Game is probably, if you were to pin me down, I would say that this is my favorite uh, book. I, I love it. I usually read this about once a year. Uh, I'll go through and read this book. Um, it was suggested to me again when I worked at Deseret Book, that bookstore that I would probably like it. If you know, if I like Star Trek The Next Generation and I enjoy um, you know, other types of, uh, of fantasy literature, I'd like this. And so I thought, all right, fine. By the end of chapter one, when something really kind of grotesque happens, <laughs> I was hooked. It was because of that grotesque act that I was like, son of a gun, this is going to be awesome! And I went with it. And it tells the story of, of Ender and how he's used. He's, he's uh, well, I don't want to give up too much, but he is used in a future type society where they think, okay, look, we're going to use children. We're going to train them up when they're really, really young to help become the military leaders. Um, and we're going to try and find the incredibly brilliant among them. Um, and I know, Joe, you've talked about this before where you feel like Orson Scott Card... You know, ripped into your head and stole the idea of the uh, the the battle game um, at uh, at the school. Um, very very interesting story, and what it does, in my opinion, it what you do to a kid when you lie to them over time. That even if it's for a good cause, it, it kind of destroys. Which is why my Ender. children don't believe in Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> that is not true. That's not true. <laughs> not true. It should be true. <laughs> <laughs> I should give you evidence as to why you shouldn't. You should allow them to believe in Santa Claus sometimes. Is Remind it, yes, me Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. No, because I read it. <laughs> no. I was not impressed. <laughs> no, no, no. The, so oh, the parallel true. novel to that was Ender's Shadow. Again, tells the story of Bean and how Bean was helping Ender along the entire time, and Ender just had no idea. Uh, I loved Ender's Shadow for the story, writing itself. It's a wonderful story, but one of the things that this kid goes through, he was brought up on the streets of Holland, I want to say, and he had nothing. He was an urchin, you know, as one of the the first chapters of the book uh, uh, is. He comes up with this mantra, no think choose do and that's how he managed to survive and get through life um, and how he uses that and it's very interesting to see that same story that's told in Ender's Game from the perspective of Bean and all of the other sideline stuff essentially we get a lot of the backstory about what's going on at Battle School that we'd never get through the story of Ender's Game loved it if anybody enjoys science fiction First read Ender's Game, then read Ender's Shadow. It is phenomenal. I didn't like Ender's Shadow. Yeah, I, I, you, you're not the only one who's ever said that. I, for me, it it struck a chord. I enjoyed it very much because I 
uh, I see myself as the character of Bean. Not the super brilliant, but the person who is just off to the sideline, just he is doing his job, he's in a critical role, not the most important one, but he is there and fulfills what he needs to do. And he's counted upon and he he does it. Um, so I identified with him, which is probably why I love the story so much. Um, one of the things I didn't like about Ender's Shadow is that he seemed to... I, I really feel like it diminished the character of Ender, in, in my opinion. That, sure. Yeah, you, you, you can definitely come away with that, for sure. And, and the thing I always liked about Ender, and the thing I see in myself, and I can point back to Babylon 5 and say, yeah, I saw it there too, which is... Don't start a fight, but always finish it. Yeah. Um, I and I feel like that they kind of took that away from what they had built in Ender's Game, which was part of the aspect of it that I loved so much. So I, I struggled I, with that. I get how people would say it diminishes Ender. I don't think it does. I think it adds to what's really going on with him. Um, Ender still is the brilliant kid that he is. Um, I don't think it takes away anything okay. with what he is able to accomplish um, in, in all of this. I just I like the fact that they put a kid who managed to surround him with all of the tools he needed gotcha. to, to get it done. Okay. I'm going to come down between the middle of you two. I don't. <laughs> I, I guess that's where I land here, <laughs> sit, sitting between the two of you, and now kind of come to a middle opinion on the Ender's Game and Ender's Shadow. I feel the Ender's Game is a much much better book. Um, it's got a lot of heavy themes, um, and some people would say that the reason I like Ender's Game more is because it is just a wish fulfillment for geeks, and I don't know how to dispute that, because, um, I love Ender's Game, I've read it many times. Now, the Ender's Shadow series was written many years later by Card, and yes. it has, uh, more of a thriller, kind of John Grisham feel to it. There's it, it, a lot it of thought, mm-hmm. thought, and um, almost philosophy going on with the original Ender stories. And Ender Shadow is more just straightforward action. They're, they're a- they are absolutely action novels. There's no getting around that. I, I got the chance to meet Card a couple of times, and I told him, I said, Hey, look, I've read the, the Ender Saga, and I've read the Ender Shadow story, uh, or the the Shadow series, and I said, I really like the Shadow series better. The Ender stuff, it's just a bunch of talking heads. <laughs> and he's like, Yeah, I understand. I totally get that. I w- you know, I I agree with you. I think the Shadow stuff is better, but I would hope that it would be better because I wrote it later in my career. I hope I'm a better <laughs> author. Of course, if you know anything about Card, he's incredibly arrogant. The man is very arrogant. He has strong opinions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, they're two different types of stories. Um, uh, anyway, I think you if you read the two together, it gives you a very, very rich story. That's my thought. Okay. Uh, my next one is A Cast of Thousands. Uh, it's by a guy named Steve Shagan. Uh, so this is, the guy who wrote this is a professional script writer. He's worked on a lot of TV shows and a lot of movies, cleaning up other people's scripts and coming in as kind of a, a fix-it kind of guy on the scripts. Um, the, the, the concept has a lot in common with the producers. I don't know if you've ever heard of the musical or the, the film, the producers. The basic idea of the producers is 
we can make more money than we uh, on a failure than we can on a success because if it's a success, we have to continue to market it and we have to do all these other things. Whereas if it's a failure, we can embezzle all that money and then when the thing's a flop, it's a flop and we walk away that much the richer. Um, so with a cast of thousands, what it actually is, it, there's a group of people who realize this same fact, but what they really want to do is they want to buy a studio. They, they, and they decide, we're going to try and make the studio fail. And so they get this project greenlit, and, and they just set, they try to set up everything so that it is doomed to fail. They get the, the director who's addicted to heroin, <laughs> the, the writer who has been hiding from the, the IRS in Jamaica, sampling the local product on a regular basis. Uh, and the main star is the writer's ex-wife, who he had a very acrimonious divorce with. And and they have literally a cast of thousands. This is just a huge kind of a Cecil B. DeMille style massive story about the, uh, I can't remember, I think it was World War II and the American troops stationed in Spain during World War II. Um, of course, as, as the story goes on through all the, the many failures of, of these people, somehow a brilliant movie comes out the other end and it ruins the plan of these people who were trying to make the studio fail. Turns out to be a smashing success. Uh, so in that aspect, there's, there wasn't a whole lot original to it. But the thing that it's, this book is kind of famous for and that I really enjoyed is it's known as a fairly accurate portrayal uh, in a fictionalized sense of what goes on in making a movie. Uh, the, the, the process of what goes on behind the scenes and, and like they talk about you know, filming dailies and, and reviewing the dailies and sending the dailies back to the studio. And, and, you know, there's a lot of things that I didn't know about the film industry that I learned reading this book that ha I've since had have confirmed through other sources. For example, we hear from Peter Jackson in the extended edition of Lord of the Rings where he talks about they got together every day and they reviewed everything that was filmed that day and, and sometimes they had to send it back to the studio and things like that. So it was, it was a very interesting book. I will say... It's a little racy, it, you know. I mean, it's writing about what really goes on in Hollywood, <laughs> and it's not always super pleasant. <laughs> um, but it, but for all of that, I found it enjoyable. It was a good story and and very entertaining, hmm. as well as educational. Cool. All right. <laughs> you got anything? I don't know how many books you had. So I have, I have a few more. I have, if you're ready for my next one. Yep. Yeah, right. do it. Just wanted to make sure we had enough time to comment on Joey's book. I, I didn't have much to, to add to that. But um, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna have two more books, so this will be my second to last. Okay. All right. Um, I chose Dune by Frank Herbert. Oh, I thought that um, might be on your list. Yeah. One of my all-time favorites. Again, <laughs> unable to choose a specific book as my favorite, but um, Dune. Um, is definitely uh, Herbert's masterpiece. I read all six of the books that he wrote. I I won't comment <laughs> on the ones that his son wrote. Um, <laughs> but Dune was definitely the best. Um, it has a lot of uh, philosophy in it, but it doesn't. It's not overpowered by that. There's um, just a really cool main character, um, Paul Atreides. Um, it's science fiction, but at the same time, like Star Wars, it kind of has that fantasy element to it that, that kind of just 
hooks me in and um, I just love the plots within plots and uh, even you know it's it's written in the 60s but just as good as anything written today I think it holds up just as well anything that has Patrick Stewart in it has got <laughs> to be awesome yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'm of course referring to the movie that was made with uh, Sting yeah Sting right um, one of the enemies there very, very interesting movie. A little on the weird side. Um, <laughs> the book's a little on the weird yeah, side. It is. <laughs> uh, and, and we read that. The first time I read it was when we did it for the book club. Yeah. The, the, the failed book club that we. It wasn't had. failed. It just stopped. <laughs> <laughs> Way to put a good spin on that, Curtis. Good for you. Every book club has it was to stop. It, it was a huge success while it was going on. We just <laughs> couldn't continue it. <laughs> Um, anyway, I remembered reading it and having a tough time getting through it. And I think it's another one of those things where he's putting so much into it that uh, I know it was of epic like level, but I know it, it was my failing as a reader that couldn't properly appreciate it. I, 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 I want to be clear. I'm not saying it's a bad book. Uh, I'm just saying... I am not mature enough to appreciate the the good writing because I, I think at the time you explained to me is like, look, this is like the epitome of the Messiah type, you know, promise deliverer, science fiction fantasy type of book that is out there. Yeah. Like everybody else aspires to what Dune did. <clears throat> Robert Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I, I don't think I want to be a part of this uh, Wheel of Time thing. Too late, you already committed. <laughs> you can't back out now. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a, one of the things about the Wheel of Time is that I I read it after I'd already read Dune and uh, I got to the Io people. I can't, I can't remember how to pronounce that name. Oh, yeah. uh, um, the desert people and I just wanted to throw the book across from him. I was like, "You stole the Fremen from Franker. How could you do that?" <laughs> <laughs> what What would you say was the overall theme? If If there was one, or maybe there's a few um, um, that that Herbert was trying to do. With, I think with the Dune. theme that I liked the most in Dune was, uh, "What would you do if you knew the future?" That's uh, that's kind of a theme that carries on through several other books with Paul Atreides, but um, that's kind of his his uh, struggle through the first Dune book. Is he has these visions of the future? He can see possible paths that the f future can take, and he has to decide what he's going to do. Is he going to do the actions that will take him down this path? Is he going to try and find something that's on none of the paths that he's seen? Um, what would you do if you could see possible futures? I mean, would it drive you crazy? I, mean, I would get really wealthy. <laughs> I was going to say, is it bad that the first thought I had when you asked that question was... <laughs> 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 Maybe you could twirl your mustache while you do that a little bit. Uh, I, I would say... Uh, when I read Dune, I always come away with the same thing. And I've tried it several times and I've read... I think I may have read more of the books than you did, because I, I continued to read even after I realized that his son is just a 
cradle or not cr- grave robbing thief. I mean, uh, just cradle robbing. I, sorry, wrong end of the <laughs> life spectrum here. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I, I continued to try and read them <laughs> after I realized this. There's just no way this is going to get any better. But uh, the thing I always come away with is religion is dangerous. Religion and and faith and belief are dangerous things. They cause a lot of pain and a lot of, of hatred and a lot of divisiveness in humanity. To the point that there is no benefit to it. I think that would I think that would be Frank Herbert's con, con, uh, contention. I, maybe I'm wrong, but that's that's what I come away from the book reading, going, "Wow, this guy just is just down on religion as an organized religion. He hates it." Curtis rebuttal. Oh, that's an interesting thought. I don't think I'd ever really uh, given that. Uh, a lot of brain power. Um, he, Look, he it, definitely it, don't, does. Don't sugar. You're welcome yeah, to call no. him an idiot <laughs> if you feel like no, it's. No, I, I definitely. That's something I hadn't really considered a lot with the Dune trilogy because he he continues through the through the six books that he wrote to, to talk about um, um, the religion that kind of forms up and uh, uh, he definitely doesn't have nice things to say about how it can calcify and and um, just kind of get. To a point where it's unhelpful, uh, gets in its own way almost. Um, and that was certainly that some, that was certainly one of the paths that Paul Atreides was trying to avoid. Was trying to avoid. Yeah. What yeah. was it that uh, the the malignant nature that man can have upon religion, or is it was he saying religion itself, Joey, was the real thing that was bad? I I, I think his contention is that religion is bad. We should stay away from it because it always pulls humanity down into the darkness. That's interesting because it almost it almost seems to me like, um, and I, I guess I'll just have to give away some of the plot of the, the book to, to talk about this, but Paul Atreides becomes basically the god of this people on this planet, and he almost becomes a martyr because of that. Like, his, the religion that forms up around him practically kills him, like it. Um, it's a very interesting storyline to watch him as he struggles with he, it. He, he's spending all his effort trying to avoid the jihad that he knows is coming. Right. And and in the end, he doesn't manage to avoid it. It happens. And I, that's why I come away with it saying, boy, in, in Herbert's mind, there's no way for us to be religious without going towards jihad or going towards religious warfare. Yeah, that, because that even with a guy that can see the future and has all these messianic powers, he's still unable to pull humanity out of this path. And what what builds on that is in, in later books, and maybe maybe this should be a whole. Maybe we should take this aside <laughs> out of the podcast. But his Paul Atreides' son Leto um, says, you know, he's going to take the path his father couldn't, and he's going to embrace his godhood, and he he. Now I'm giving away third and fourth books. <laughs> he actually um, takes on the aspects of these giant worms that inhabit the the world of of Dune, and uh, he rules over Dune and the whole galaxy with an iron fist for thousands of years. Yeah, and uh, it's very interesting. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, on his death, he unleashes uh, humanity to interstellar interstellar exploration. They, that was the conclusion of the fourth book, is that um, once he was dead, then people were free 
to go out and explore, explore. the universe, yeah, expand. Mm. But the chapter has to end. It all comes back to the beginning. Again. Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Since uh, we talked about a uh, book that hates religion so much, I'm going to share a religious book. Oh, good. I've been. I was anxious for you to talk about this one. Anxious? Yes, I want to hear what you have to say about it. Oh, I usually term anxious as like, oh no, what's he going to say? Excited. Ah, you're excited. All right. Uh, well, I hate the screw tape letters. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't think I was going to go there, did you? Fair enough. <laughs> no, I'm only kidding. I, I am covering uh, C.S. Lewis's the screw tape letters. Um, I recently found out that they're doing a play. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Uh, I'm curious as yeah. to how they do this because the 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 makeup of this book is um, Screw Tape is is responding to his cousin or nephew nephew. nephew thank you, uh, Wormwood, who's writing him letters, and and Screw Tape is getting giving him suggestions as a senior devil to a junior devil to get assist him in how he can help to bring down. This man, we don't really know who this man is. We we get glimpses of him as they talk about ways that uh, um, Wormwood could start to yeah. tempt him and and cause him to fall from grace, as it were. I really enjoyed it, specifically because it helped shine a light on the silly things that we allow to happen in our lives, the justifications. That can happen because, oh, I'm a good person. Yeah, this isn't that bad. Yeah, yeah, so I let that book uh, wait until it was 80% off so I could steal <laughs> as much money from my, my employer. Um, you know, those types of things. As each letter kind of takes a certain aspect about humanity and shows how we can fall into these, these traps. And so it's a, a tongue-in-cheek way of saying, Look, don't fall into these types of things. This is what the devil is trying to get you to do. One of my favorites um, is when Screwtape talks about, um, I think it was church attendance and zeal. And saying, you know, hey, if you can get him to not just become like an appropriate church thing, but get him to an extreme yeah. Of one of these. And it's been years since I've read this, so I'm paraphrasing terribly right now. But it was, for me, the favorite was let's try and get him to one of these extremes. You know, if safety is here, let's get him to anything other than what that is. Um, you know, so if he becomes a zealot, fantastic. If he becomes, um, you know, a lazy person who just doesn't care, then. That's good too. Voila, we we achieved yeah. it there as well. Um, it, it it shines a light on a lot of the different areas of humanity that we can make better in ourselves that I really like. And at the end, one of the the fun things is um, Screw Tape. What he does with Wormwood. I'm not going to give it away. Granted, I'm betting most people have probably already read this who are listening. But if you haven't, um, whether you are of the Christian denomination or not, or, a, you know, an atheist even, I still think that you can see the aspects in here, whether, you know, whatever your religious proclivities may be, you can gain something from this book within yourself to realize, okay, I recognize things in, in here that are bad about myself, 
and let's make some adjustments in my own personal life. Absolutely. Not a very long book. It's pretty short. You can get through it really easy. That's why I read it. <laughs> also, I love C.S. Lewis. He's, he's really, really great. Uh, the, the, the thing from Screwtape Letters that has stuck with me, I think I was 14 the first time I read it, and I still have never forgotten this. It's The Law of Undulation. Oh, sure. Where he talks about, you know, when, when we're at a high point in our lives, that is really when we're the most vulnerable because our lives are roller coasters. They go mm-hmm. up and they go down. Yep. And when we're on those emotional highs, then it's very easy to knock us down because then when things start to go wrong, it seems like it's going to be a bottomless pit and it's just going to keep going down mm-hmm. and down and down. And the time to be the most worried about us, if you're a devil, is when we're at the bottom of the curve because that's when we're going to look around for something other than ourselves, something grander and bigger to look up to and to look forward to. And that's the point where they have to be the most careful. And, and the goal is to flatten out those curves. Because if, they, if we're just kind of coasting along, then we're neither doing great nor, ter- nor terribly, but Satan is winning. Right, right. Yeah, that's good. Chapter 8, by the way. Okay. Found it here. Chapter 8. Joey, right. you're up next. Okay. Oh, let's see. What to cover next? The Future of Ideas by Lawrence Lessig. I don't think I've made any bones on this podcast about the fact that I have a great admiration. Uh, dare I say it, a man crush? <laughs> no, we don't dare say it. <laughs> um, this was the first one of Lessig's books that I, I really read and got into to try and understand the point that he was trying to make. So Lessig, for people who don't remember is a constitutional scholar who talks a lot these days about copyright and how copyright has changed in our culture from what was originally the intent, in his opinion, of the Founding Fathers. Um, the, the, the main theme of the future of ideas is he talks about how copyright exists in our world today on three layers. He says the first layer is code. It's software that enforces copyrights. So we're talking about encryption on DVDs or the encryption on your iTunes songs or the fact that I can only read my Kindle book on certain devices and not on others. Uh, so that's one of the layers he talks about. The second layer is uh, content. So this is the actual the ideas that are expressed in a copyrighted work. And then the, the third is the physical distribution. Uh, you know, and how it's being affected by Napster and Torrents and things like that in, in our world today. And, and the, the principle of the book is, all right, the, the code layer has changed dramatically. The physical distribution layer has changed dramatically. The content layer hasn't changed all that much. It's still pretty much the same as it's always been. You got the author or the the film crew or the people who go off and create something and come back and say, hey world, here's what I created, please partake of it. And it all gets filtered through a few key players, industry particular, you know, so you have the RIA or the MPAA or the big five publishing firms. And these people are kind of gatekeepers on our consumption of media of, of any form. And And it's about how these people who are the gatekeepers are desperately trying everything they can on the physical distribution and code layers to keep everything the same because that is their bread and butter. That is where they make their livelihoods. But the point that he makes is 
the world has changed. These two layers have changed. The content layer is going to have to change as well. And it was very interesting when I went to Life, the Universe, and Everything, one of the presentations that I went to was Tracy Hickman, very well-established fantasy author. Um, he was teaching a class. The title of the class was Free Books Are Worth Every Penny. And, and his contention was, look, you're all budding and aspiring authors. Please don't give away your material for free because not only do you devalue your own material, but you devalue mine. <laughs> I, I don't think he would have put it that plainly, but that really yeah. was at the end of the day what he was trying to say. And he, he made some good points about, you know, it's a creative process and a creative work. You should have some value in it. Because if you don't, no one else will. But he, he did admit that the industry and the world has changed a little bit. He pointed to Kickstarter as an example. Well, I should say, I mentioned Kickstarter and he begrudgingly admitted that it exists. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because he was saying, you know, he, he was talking about how you don't go to a publisher anymore. You go to Amazon or you go to Lulu or you go to one of these sites and you self-publish. He says, you know, what... What the publisher brought to the table for many, many years was a marketing department. And the, the disposable cover, you know, where you could tear off the cover of the book. So they would bring thousands of copies of these books in with no intent to ever sell that many because they knew they could just tear off the cover, throw it in the trash, and get full credit for that book. People don't go into bookstores anymore. People buy their books online. They buy them on iTunes and, and Amazon and things like this. And this is killing the effectiveness of that marketing program that has worked for hundreds of years. Um, and, and so I think what we're starting to see is a shift from the ground up. People are saying, you know what? I don't need a publisher anymore. I think it was last year or the year before where the New York Times did the story on the, the girl, like 20, 21, year old, 21 years old, who became a millionaire selling 99-cent books on Amazon. Like 99 cent ebooks. Wow. And it's because she just churns so many of them out. And, and they're drivel. I tried one of them. They're, uh, she wants to be the next Stephanie Myers. She's trying to be the next Stephanie Myers. It's vampiric romance. It's, that's what it is. That's what she writes. Well, she only has to sell a few of each book, you know, to, to make back the production cost. <laughs> and she's churning out 20 or 30 of these a month, or, you know, incre incredibly high numbers of them. Very derivative, very repetitive stuff, but she's making money, and clearly, she is she is not well. Clearly, there's a publisher. market yes, for it. Ab absolutely, there's a market for it. They're wrong, but they're real. <laughs> well, how wrong can they be for ninety nine cents? <laughs> <laughs> well, for a million dollars, wrong. That's how wrong they can be. <laughs> anyway, uh, so it was it, it was it's an uh, it's a book who I think its idea has come without having to go about it the way Lessig said. Lessig was saying. The industry needs to change, and I think what has happened instead is that the culture has changed. People don't try to publish with a publisher anymore. They say, you know what? I don't need Tor. I don't need Del Rey. I don't know if Del Rey's even around anymore. Even merged into somebody. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, very interesting read, nonetheless, especially when he talks about copyright over the years and how the Creative Commons has historically been something that's open to people. And you know, he, he talks about the value of it and how many of our ideas that we have today would not be possible under the current copyright structure because it just 
says, you know what, sorry, you can't do that. In the classic example that he gives, Steamboat Willie, the Mickey Mouse cartoon that launched the career of Mickey Mouse, was a ripoff of a Buster Keaton movie called Steamboat Bill. It was copyright violation. And now who is like the strongest copyright enforcement in the world is Disney. Good stuff. Very entertaining read. It, where does parody fall in all of that sort of stuff? Well, it depends. Ge- I- generally speaking, you can't get into too much trouble with parody. The place where you the place where you can get into trouble is if you include too much of the original work in your in your attempt at parody, then you can get into some legal trouble. Because mm. I always thought that I mean you can kind of use that as the. No, 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 this isn't the original. <laughs> this is something different, or it's it's a parody of this. If it goes to court, there's a qualitative judgment that's made by usually a panel of judges of, you know, how much original process is there in here, how much is, uh, how much is a, a theft of copyright. And if you go back and you watch the Buster Keaton movie, Steamboat Bill, and you watch the Mickey Mouse, Steamboat Willie, it's the exact same movie, but with an animated mouse instead of a person. Literally the exact same movie. Well, animators got it right. Well done. <laughs> All right. Okay, Curtis, your last book? All right, last book. Okay, so my last book is The Hero in the Crown by Robin McKinley. All right, talk to us about The Hero in the Crown. <laughs> <laughs> is that... I have tried so many times to get into this book, and I have never succeeded. Wow. Have you have you read it, Pete? I have not. But don't right. be down on him. He's a terrible uh, <laughs> sense of what's good in this world. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, somebody stuck up for you, Joey. Because yeah, I think Curtis is good. <laughs> he, he, can't, he can't be too harsh on me. <laughs> Joey and I share too many interests for me to wholeheartedly agree with that, Pete. <laughs> okay, so Hero in the Crown. Um, let's see. I believe it was a Newbery Medal winner. Uh, I read it when I was in sixth grade I believe for the first time and absolutely fascinated by it I I think I've had a little bit of a theme tonight with fantasy novels um, in this particular story Erin is a young girl um, she's raised in the court of her father but she's a bit of an outcast because her mother was the king's second wife and a lot of people thought that her mother was a witch and uh, the story goes that her mother died in childbirth when she looked when after the delivery she realized that she'd born a girl instead of a boy like in the disappointment because she wanted to take over the throne so anyway there's a lot of there's a lot of uh dislike of Aaron as she, as she's growing up um so she spends a lot of time alone and she st- she uh well to give an additional background there there are in this world um this fantasy kingdom of, with knights running around. There are uh, dragons, but they're very small creatures. They're more of a nuisance. Um, kind of like a wolf attacking your your sheep in, in a pen. You know, you, you send out a party of men to go take one down when you, when you find one. Um, and she stumbles on an old recipe for this um, gr- this grease, greasy substance that she can put over herself that'll make her flame resistant and she hopes that this will be in a she'll be able to make herself useful as a dragon hunter kind of thing and uh then um she she figures out this recipe she goes out and 
hunts a few of these small dragons, and then it turns out that there's a real dragon, a big, enormous monster that is threatening the land, and she goes out to fight it, and the adventure continues on from there. And I don't, I, I just found this novel so engaging. I've read it many times, and uh, just really, really interesting. Um, just watching her puzzle through how to get this. Um, Shoot, I I should look at what it's actually called here, but there's the dragon the, named Trogdor. The Kellar is oh no, that's for magic. No, it's not named Trogdor. <laughs> you did not burn any of the countries. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know what else. I lost my train of thought. I guess <laughs> Trogdor, the burning. So I think the farthest I've Sorry. ever made it into the book is about page twenty. I just have mm. a hard time getting that initial buy-in into the universe. Yeah that would let me get pulled into it. I, I don't know why. It's just something about the writing style or, or the character's voice or something. I've never yeah. been able to put my finger on what it is. I've had other people say that they they found that it was too slow moving at the beginning. But I don't know. I, I found it very interesting. The story gets more complex as it, as it goes. And, was it because know, the just... character was a woman and you didn't really hate women? I'm also a misogynist. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, would you mind misogynating my feet? <laughs> no? Okay. Uh, but you like it. I do. I highly recommend it. And the blue sword as well? And the blue sword as well. Okay. Okay. Um, you? My last book is not really a book. It's an author. Okay. And uh, I, I could go up and get the books if you want, but I... my. My magic hiding blanket is only so big. Um, <laughs> it is uh, Calvin and Hobbes uh, by Bill Watterson. Uh, he is probably my favorite author. Uh, and yes, I'm going to go ahead and just say he is an author, in my opinion. Uh, he is hands down creative as all get out. The Someone who can write in these individual short little things that are, i, I got to say, 95% of the time funny witty um thought-provoking thought-provoking yeah he he definitely pushes the envelope of what was um the cartoon genre yeah uh this uh, the uh, the daily newspaper cartoon brilliant brilliant man um and i as a kid remembered waiting for the sunday comic to get there with the sunday newspaper so that i could read the Calvin and Hobbes. I would always try and make that the last comic that I read in the 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 newspaper uh, for, for that time because I savored it. I wanted it <laughs> so much because I loved it because it was brilliant. Um, he went 10 years, stopped. Uh, I, I own the entire collection. Uh, I, I have read it many, many times. I, as a Sunday school teacher, I have photocopied his um, comics and use them in Sunday school lessons. Uh, I just love Calvin and Hobbes. It's brilliant. Um, and if you enjoy um, good stuff, you'll love <laughs> Calvin and Hobbes. I'm just because all the people who blanket hate good stuff. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They're out there. If you're a decent human being, you will love this. <laughs> Everybody likes to like sit back and like poke around. Oh man. Calvin and Hobbes, that was the greatest ever, but in my mind, it really was. Um, yes, there are other things out there. You know, At the same time, Gary Larson was writing The Far Side, which 
you know, groundbreaking and amazing that stuff was too. Uh, but for me, honest to goodness, it, he is the quintessential king of, of, of comic. One, one thing that I think that he managed that I've not seen any other comic strip author manage is the consistency of his product. Yeah. Every single panel, there were, or not panel, but every single strip, I found something in it to really enjoy. You know, uh, uh, one that's come close in, it, it, the the high moments it has are almost as good as Calvin and Hobbes' is Rose is Rose. Uh, at times I think that that captures humanity the way that Calvin and Hobbes managed to, but they just, they can't be anywhere nearly as consistently good as what Will Anderson managed to do for 10 years. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's told from the story of a, a perspective of a six-year-old who has this imaginary uh, stuffed tiger who is real. And, you know, that's supposed to be the fun angle of it. It is written, you know, the characters of Calvin and Hobbes, those are religious uh, people who had very, you know, interesting ideas about what religion should be. And it he's writing underlying stuff. And you know the teacher's name, right? What's that? The teacher's name? Miss Wormwood. Oh, it's a reference to screw tape players. I didn't I didn't I don't think I've ever picked up on that, Joey. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Anyway, I love it. I think it's the fantastic. Right on. So who's Susie Durkins? <laughs> I never figured that one out. I don't know. <laughs> Girls in general? I don't know. Uh okay, uh so the next one I have is The Cathedral and the Bazaar by Eric S. Raymond. This is an essay, not so much a book, but it is... So, Raymond is a sociologist by profession and a computer programmer by choice. Um, he is the guy who, kind of 10, 15, maybe even close to 20 years ago now, looked at the open source software world, which the term I don't think even existed at the time that he was writing this and said what is it about this why are these computer programmers drawn to give away their stuff for free why is it working why is it so effective because it, it, you know for people who aren't in the technology industry you might not realize but most of your world is probably run in some aspect or another on a piece of open source software 97% mm -hmm. of all websites in the world run on software that was given away for free. It was written by a bunch of computer programmers and given away for free. Uh, the, the, all the I, iPhone stuff, all the Macintosh stuff that's really cool now is based on open source technology. That they, they took the good stuff and they said, okay, we're gonna take this great stuff that you guys made for free and then we're gonna add some value on top and, and rebundle it and sell it back commercially. Um, so the Cathedral and the Bazaar is Eric S. Raymond trying to analyze from a sociologist's point of view what is it that's going on here because at the time it was a an incredibly dramatic shift everyone was trying to make money off their software and here you had some of the most brilliant programmers in the world saying no go ahead and take it use it i don't care what you do with it you know don't don't kill anybody don't you know don't don't use it to run <laughs> missile warheads hopefully things like that but uh you know just do what you will with it and the, the, the examples he gives, he says, okay, so the world today, for the most part, in, in the software world, is organized as people trying to build a cathedral. 
they try to sit down and they try to map out every single detail and they try to plan, okay, you know, this truss is going to go here and that line of code is going to go there. And it delivers working software, but it's not software that anyone's passionate about. Meanwhile, you have the bazaar. It's just all these people kind of getting together and just doing whatever they find interesting. And who cares about what the end result is? We're just here because it's interesting. Uh, and, and so it really was the first formalization of the principles behind open source software. And it's what got me thinking, you know what? Open source software is maybe something I might want to do. Because at the time, I was trying to make myself into someone who had a career as a programmer. And I was thinking, okay, open source, you know, it, it's cool. It gives me good software, but why would anyone do it? And it was through understanding. And, and I, I realized that saying, you know, into open source software makes me sound a bit like a communist. I was but, just about to say, it sounds <laughs> like what the point of this is, socialism works. <laughs> but it, it's, it, it's scientific research. And we all get better when scientific research is open to the community. That's, that, that was the end argument that he made, I think. Curtis, I don't know if you ever actually read the Cathedral. I Mary. haven't. You're missing out. It's a really good paper. Very interesting to read. But you already believe in it. So I, yeah. You, you, you don't need <laughs> anyone preaching to you about why it's true. <laughs> Yeah, that was my last one. That's why. Well, I guess we can be done then. We can be done with that one. Uh, I want to thank uh, the the listeners who sent in uh, their comments, and more especially, I want to thank Curtis for finally coming on the podcast. It only took us three years (laughs) to get him here. I guess we just had to get the right subject material. Um, It it was fun to have you here. We would love to have you back. Your wife is wonderful, but you know what? You're great too. Thanks. So you should make it. Choice to come back sometime, <laughs> and uh, I told it, you what you can do to get me on your podcast. I don't remember that. Sexual favors? <laughs> oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> oh no! I told you I would come on the podcast if you uh, use Battlestar Galactica as one of your TV shows. Oh, oh! Apparently, oh. we're going to get there someday. <laughs> I, I, I just am, finished it. I'm about it's halfway, br- yeah, I'm it's about brilliant. halfway through the second season right now, watching it with my wife for the Is first time. For so, the first time. For the first time, yeah. So. We can have a conversation after we okay. get done <laughs> All here. Right. I think you might join us for when we get around to Firefly, because we'll do uh, hit that okay, one before sure. we hit Battlestar Galactica. Uh, anyway, thank you for coming on. We really appreciate it. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of The Home Starmy Presents Trek West 5. We hope that you've learned something, had some laughs, and we always invite your comments to our email at trekwest5 at thehomestarmy.com. Or you can tweet us at hashtag trekwest5, or call and leave us a voicemail at 801-788-4913. So until next time, I am Joey. And I am Peter. And thanks for listening. It's good to see you again. So good to see you again.